And hoes, I'll be short and sweet, equal parts, short and sweet. Tuesdays on your KC Morning Show, we take back America, myself and Professor Harvey K. He is Professor Emeritus at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay, back with some radical poetry in your feeds next week. But for today, we're going to take it back to one of our conversations. I think this was in January, first of the year for sure. Some of the most radical words ever spoken by a sitting president, if it's radical, and it's president, it's probably FDR. In fact, it is FDR. Some words of wisdom from FDR. We're going to play that back for you right here, right now, on your KC Morning Show. Rate, review, subscribe, do that thing you do. Kansas City, we up for some awards. Yeah, you're good at this, Kansas City. We up for best local podcast three times. That's what we want to be. We want to be a three-time best local podcast. Let's make that our rendezvous with destiny, Kansas City. That's an FDR quote. My name's Hartzell. Back in your feeds tomorrow. It's a good day to be a Kansas Cityan, yeah? Always a good day to be a Kansas Cityan. We'll see you in the morning. Bye. Going straight to one place. Right to Kansas City. The KC Morning Show. January 11, 1970, victory belonged to Hank Stram and his Kansas City Chiefs. TV9 News Special Report, close up the flood of 77. From the Kemper Arena in Kansas City, Missouri, it's Milwaukee Bucks against the Kansas City Kings. Now Kansas Cityans must decide what happens next. What is to follow the city's Holy Week riots? I am here at the American Royal World Series of Barbecue. Daryl Motley awaits, and the Kansas City Royals are world champions. <laughs> Professor Harvey K., my brother. Professor K., I just want to say this. We have spent so much time together, my comrade, in this last week, and I think, dare I say, we are so much better for it. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm actually younger at the end of the week than I was at the beginning of the week. You know that? <laughs> And this is a special show. We're going to do something a little different because we originally set out thinking we do three or four FDR episodes. I think this is our, is this our this fourth? Part four. Yes. Part four. And we're only going to do two speeches. We're only going to do two speeches from 1936. And the reason is that one is the State of the Union address of January 36. And the other one is FDR's acceptance speech of the renomination for the presidency of the United States. So on the crescendo scale of FDR's social democratic track, where are we now on the timeline, you think? So keep in mind, we've covered his young politics. We've covered his campaign. 
We've covered his early years as president. This is that moment where, because of certain forces that have come into play all the more fiercely, FDR moves to the left that much more. And what I mean by that is this. For a start, he is seriously, seriously concerned, although even more than he was in 32, 33, about the future of democracy in the world. Fascism is all the more on the march in Europe. You've got Hitler and the Nazis in Germany. You've got Mussolini and the fascists in Italy, a host of other petty fascists around Europe, and not to mention Japanese militarism, imperial militarism in East Asia. So that's on his mind. But the other thing is, here in the United States, the richest people in America, and I kid you not, I mean the very richest, the DuPont brothers and others, have organized a group called the American Liberty League with the intention of literally not allowing FDR to win a second term as president. I mean, they just really want to destroy the New Deal administration. So if we could put this in modern terms, Harvey, this is the equivalent of, say, maybe the Koch brothers? Absolutely. Perfectly. Yes. The Koch brothers and the other forces that gathered basically to try to assure Republican victory in, in 2020. And were even willing to go with Donald Trump, who they probably had very little respect for to begin with. Well, similarly, these guys back in the 30s around the American Liberty League, they couldn't care less who became president. They just did not want any more of the New Deal. They did not want to, number one, be subjected any further to New Deal public regulation and supervision of corporate activity. They did not like the initiatives that were underway. They did not like the empowerment of workers and labor unions. The other thing is the labor movement was solidly behind FDR, but there were forces, popular forces outside of the labor movement that were really trying to push FDR on a host of issues. And those other forces can either be viewed as leftish or rightish. It's, it's unclear. They didn't describe themselves one way or the other. But these were forces that were, if you like, generated by Father Coughlin, the radio priest, who was like the Rush Limbaugh of his day, a doctor named Francis Townsend. I think his name was Francis Townsend, but his idea was to push for some kind of social security program. It was another kind of set of payments. And last but not least, in the most dangerous figure as far as FDR was concerned was Huey Long, the dictator, so to speak, of Louisiana. And Huey Long had this idea that he was going to sell his political future as, you know, every man a king, share the wealth. But he was a dictator, definitely a dictator, which, you know, is not terribly unusual in the southern states in those in those years. Now, the American Liberty League was eager to displace FDR from the presidency. They spent millions promoting their arguments that he was somehow un-American on radio and film strips, you name it, in newspaper outlets, etc. But they were never able to generate any kind of grassroots support. Their ambitions shifted a bit. If they couldn't necessarily get a Republican elected, which was a concern of theirs, here's what they imagined. If they could help encourage a third party among these non-labor populists, so to speak, they would pull votes from FDR in 1936 that would then enable the Republicans to win. That would be the vehicle to enable them to win. And I'll go so far as to say that there was a, a gathering in the South called the Grassroots Convention. And I'm going to censor myself a little bit as I tell this story. And at the Grassroots Convention, which was clearly a white folks only event, this is white supremacist, Jim Crow segregated South, on all the seats at the convention, as it was called, was a cartoon. And this cartoon depicted Eleanor Roosevelt and Franklin Roosevelt standing in front of the White House. And one of them says to the other, you kiss the Negroes, which is not the word they used, 
I'll kiss the Jews, we'll stay in the White House as long as we choose. In other words, they were relying upon clearly racism and anti-Semitism as a vehicle to sort of cultivate this grassroots kind of uh, this kind of project. For what it's worth, and we're going to be dealing with the speeches before the election takes place in November 36, FDR is on his way to the greatest presidential election victory to date in American history. It's massive. Now, FDR, I should tell you, he actually knew along the way how popular he was. The Democrats had not only taken even more seats in the 34 midterm elections, this was the early days of political polling. There were reliable pollsters and there were stupid pollsters. <laughs> Let me give you an example of what I mean. The reliable pollsters knew that a lot of Americans did not have phones and those that did had party lines. Then there was the, the poll that everyone was citing. I think it was from a, a magazine called The Literary Review, The Saturday Review, something like this, a popular magazine. And they relied on phone polling and it completely missed the boat. The working class did not have the phone lines that middle and upper middle and the rich had. Or even the time out of their day to respond to any of that stuff. Right. And by the way, when I was a boy, early 50s, little boy in New Jersey, we originally, I think, had in our house a, a, a party line, which meant that if you picked up the phone at various times, you could actually hear neighbors. We're going to do here today is we're going to look at two of FDR's speeches that really reveal his concern for democracy and also his determination not to allow the American Liberty League to destroy the New Deal and his administration. And he's going to start pointing a finger blatantly. He's not going to use the metaphor of the money changers as he did in his inaugural address. No, he's going to actually point a finger, as everyone will see, at the economic royalists. And you'll hear when we get to the second speech, clearly one of the most radical lines ever said by a president in any kind of context, a sitting president, okay, a governing president. I'm going to do the State of the Union address of January 3rd, 1936, which I've titled in the book FDR on Democracy, Popular Opinion as at War with a Power-Seeking Minority. And he uses that power-seeking minority as a reference abroad to fascism on the march, and at home to the corporate bosses and their reactionary and conservative allies. Did FDR write this in 2022? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's put it this way. When I was working on my book, The Fight for the Four Freedoms, What Made FDR and the Greatest Generation Truly Great? It was like I was living past and present at the same time. I was writing that in the early 2000s, which was, of course, the Bush administration. Now, when I read this kind of stuff with you, Hartzell, and when I just sit down and read some of these speeches, I think to myself, all the more, my God, we could use an FDR. That's, you know, what can yeah. I say? Let's deal with a, this set of lines that you and I discussed beforehand. And we'll start with you, where he's immediately talking about the imperative of fighting for democracy. Go ahead. Within democratic nations, the chief concern of the people is to prevent the continuance or the rise of autocratic institutions that beget slavery at home and aggression abroad. Within our borders, as in the world at large, popular opinion is at war with a power-seeking minority. Read that next paragraph too, and then we'll pick it up after that. That is no new thing. It was fought out in the Constitutional Convention of 1787. From time to time since then, the battle has been continued under Thomas Jefferson, Andrew Jackson, Theodore Roosevelt, and Woodrow Wilson. Yeah, now we understand that since FDR's day, 
figures like Andrew Jackson and Woodrow Wilson, we know more about them and we know the degree to which they may be popular heroes for certain reasons, but they were racists in Jackson's case on a whole vast number of folks. And in Wilson's case, the way he segregated the Capitol during his presidency. Well, let's continue. This is FDR we're worried about and his arguments for democracy. In these latter years, FDR says, we have witnessed the domination of government by financial and industrial groups. Does everyone hear that? Uh, by the way, that's my voice now. Does everyone hear that? <laughs> Numerically small, but politically dominant in the 12 years that succeeded the World War, the First World War. They didn't bother to call it one because they were hoping there wouldn't be another. The present group of which I speak, FDR says, is indeed numerically small. And while it exercises a large influence and as much to say in the world of business, it does not, I am confident, speak the true sentiments of the less articulate but more important elements that constitute real American business. So he's not going to, he's not chastising all capitalists, but he's pointing his finger really at the top echelon of capitalists. What do they call, what do we call it today? The the 1%, Harvey? Yeah, and in this instance, the point one. In March of 1933, I appealed to the Congress of the United States and to the people of the United States in a new effort to restore power to those to whom it rightfully belonged. The response to that appeal resulted in the writing of a new chapter in the history of popular government. You, the members of the legislative branch, and I, the executive, contend for and established a new relationship between government and people. Keeping in mind, of course, that he was delivering his speech in the Congress. And then he continues, what were the terms of that new relationship? They were an appeal from the clamor of many private and selfish interests. Yes, an appeal from the clamor of partisan interests to the ideal of the public interests. Government became the representative and the trustee of the public interest. Our aim was to build upon essentially democratic institutions, seeking all the while the adjustment of burdens, the help of the needy, the protection of the weak, the liberation of the exploited, and the genuine protection of the people's property. It goes without saying that to create such an economic constitutional order, more than a single legislative enactment was called for. We, you in the Congress, and I, as the executive, had to build upon a broad base. Now, after 34 months of work, we contemplate a fairly rounded whole. We have returned the control of the federal government to the city of Washington. To be sure, in so doing, we have invited battle. I love this. We have earned the hatred of entrenched greed. The very nature of the problem that we faced made it necessary to drive some people from power and strictly to regulate others. I made that plain when I took the oath of office in March 1933. I spoke of the practices of the unscrupulous money changers who stood indicted in the court of public opinion. I spoke of the rulers of the exchanges of mankind's goods who failed through their own stubbornness and their own incompetence. I said that they had admitted their failure and had abdicated. Abdicated? Yes, in 1933. But now, with the passing of danger, they forget their damaging admissions and withdraw to their abdication. They seek the restoration of their selfish power. They offer to lead us back around the same old corner into the same old dreary street. There you go. This is FDR declaring war on those corporate elite that was determined to undo his administration, to halt the New Deal, and try to restore the inequality and power that they possessed during the Gilded Age of the late 19th century through the 1920s. 
Harvey, can you read that earned hatred? I mean, I want to hear you say that again. And by the way, there's a later speech during the campaign year, and I'm sorry I didn't include it in our agenda for today, where he actually says, I welcome their hatred. And here he's already lining up that line that he's going to say a few months later, we have earned the hatred of entrenched greed. It's still there. And their puppets now are Mansion and Cinema and anyone else who will line up and oppose such things as voting rights, the Workers' Rights Pro Act, the $15 an hour minimum wage, the child tax credit as a permanent feature. And I want to say that I think I said it yesterday when you and I worked with John, when I heard them say this is going to end half of the kids who are suffering poverty, I kept saying, well, why don't we just end childhood poverty altogether? In fact, for that matter, why don't we just end poverty? (laughs) Guys, we're so close. The finish line is right there. Right. You got it. You got it. People say to me, what's your favorite speech by FDR? Look, I, I love the Four Freedom speech. I absolutely love as well the Economic Bill of Rights speech. I really do. That was, as you refer to it, the aspirational speech. The Four Freedoms and the Economic Bill of Rights, aspirational speeches. You got to love them. But this is a speech which will stir radicals. It'll stir us. Here's what's happening. They're going to hold the Democratic Convention in Philadelphia, which of course was the nation's first capital. It's actually where the Declaration of Independence was written. It was the city that Thomas Paine came to in America and went on to write Common Sense, the revolutionary document, the document that turned the rebellion into a revolution, the document that, to my mind, alongside of something like the Communist Manifesto and other documents, is one of the most radical documents in modern history. In fact, in some ways, it may well be the most radical document. So they're going to go to Philadelphia. And FDR gets the idea, since it's going to be June 27th, 1936, when he's going to deliver the speech, the convention will have gone on for a couple of days. It's only a week beyond that to July 4th. We're going to be in Philadelphia, he thinks. It's going to be the July 4th moment upcoming. We should frame the convention, and I will frame my speech around the idea of the American Revolution. And you will hear from Hartzell and me, what he ends up doing. By the way, the Democratic platform was framed in terms of the Declaration of Independence that year. So he's got the revolution in mind. So in this speech, he begins by recalling, as he likes to, where they've come from and what they've gotten to in those few years since the first uh, inaugural address. This is, of course, an acceptance speech, not the inaugural address. America will not forget those recent years, these recent years. We'll not forget that the rescue is not a mere party task. It was a concern of all of us. In our strength, we rose together, rallied our energies together, applied the old rules of common sense, and together survived. In those days, we feared fear. That was why we fought fear. And today, my friends, we have won against the most dangerous of our foes. We have conquered fear. You take the next paragraph, Hartzell. But I cannot, with candor, tell you that all is well with the world. Clouds of suspicion, tides of ill will and intolerance gather darkly in many places. In our own land, we enjoy indeed a fullness of life greater than that of most nations. But the rush of modern civilization itself has raised for us New difficulties, new problems which must be solved if we are to preserve the United States. The political and economic freedom for which Washington and Jefferson planned and fought. If I could intervene for a moment with my own voice, I kind of wish he had talked about Thomas Paine at that time, but can't ask for everything. So he continues, he said, Philadelphia is a good city in which to write American history. 
This is fitting ground on which to reaffirm the faith of our fathers, to pledge ourselves to restore to the people a wider freedom to give to 1936 as the founders gave to 1776, an American way of life. And let's jump the next paragraph and go further into that paragraph for you. And so it was to win freedom from the tyranny of political autocracy that the American Revolution was fought. That victory gave the business of governing into the hands of the average man who won the right with his neighbors to make and order his own destiny through his own government. Political tyranny was wiped out of Philadelphia on July 4th, 1776. He talks in that paragraph that we'll skip about what has happened since 1776. Modern civilization emerges, but with modern civilization came, as he talked about in the Commonwealth Club speech back in October 32, these titans of industry, this corporate elite who threaten democratic life in America. For too many of us, the political equality we once had won was meaningless in the face of economic inequality. A small group had concentrated into their own hands and almost complete control over other people's property, other people's money, other people's labor, other people's lives. For too many of us, life was no longer free. Liberty no longer real. Men could no longer follow the pursuit of happiness. Against economic tyranny such as this, the American citizen could appeal only to the organized power of government. The collapse of 1929 showed up the despotism for what it was. The election of 1932 was the people's mandate to end it. Under that mandate, it is being ended. The royalists of the economic order have conceded that political freedom was the business of the government, but they have maintained that economic slavery was nobody's business. They granted that the government could protect the citizen and his right to vote, but they denied that the government could do anything to protect the citizen in his right to work and his right to live. Today, we stand committed to the proposition that freedom is no half and half affair. If the average citizen is guaranteed equal opportunity in the polling place, he must have equal opportunity in the marketplace. Yeah. Now, this is the set of lines that I just, if you don't feel the power of these words, you're not a man or woman of the left. That's all I can say. These economic royalists complain that we seek to overthrow the institutions of America. What they really complain of is that we seek to take away their power. Our allegiance to American institutions requires the overthrow of this kind of power. In vain, they seek to hide behind the flag and the Constitution. In their blindness, they forget what the flag and the Constitution stand for. Now, as always, they stand for democracy, not tyranny, for freedom, not subjection, and against a dictatorship by mob rule and the overprivileged alike. That paragraph to me is the most radical paragraph that at least no other 20th century president ever spoke like that. This is a speech in which he really is calling Americans, in fact, he's calling them to battle against the corporate interests and by looking over the horizon, be prepared to confront fascism. And it's not the closing lines, but it's the most famous lines of this speech, which Ronald Reagan hijacked when he ran for president and occasionally throughout his presidency. And here we go. There is a mysterious cycle in human events. To some generations, much is given. Of other generations, much is expected. This generation of Americans has a rendezvous with destiny. You know, that's the kind of rhetoric that we should have been hearing from Joe Biden. He really needs to challenge us and challenge Americans, not 
to defer, not to accept the likes of Manchin and Cinema, and decidedly not to allow the Republican Party to continue to subvert and destroy American democratic life. I hear FDR when he talks about our rendezvous with destiny. It's not only a call to arms, but it's framed in the historical sense that this is important. And not only is it important, but we're going to do it. You bet. You bet. And I can tell you that it was 1980 when Ronald Reagan accepted the presidential nomination from the Republican Party. He quoted three figures from American history. He quoted Thomas Paine. We have it in our power to begin the world over again. He quoted Abraham Lincoln. And he quoted FDR. And, you know, I marveled at Reagan's capacity to grab hold of the heroes of the left, of liberals, progressives and radicals, and literally use those words against us. That's where we began, you and I, Hartzell, because Josh Hawley is taking his, if you like, his ideas or at least his methods from Ronald Reagan when he sets out to hijack the American story. I am waiting. I'm seriously waiting to hear Josh Hawley quote Thomas Paine. I'm waiting for that to happen. It's only a matter of time, Harvey, but that's why we do this show, because we are here to fight back as we take back America. It's not a natural progression of things. No, it's a struggle that we had to fight for and that we're going to keep winning. My brother, where can these folks find you on the internets? H-A-R-V-E-Y-J-K-A-Y-E. That's Harvey J. K on Twitter. Let's share this episode. This is our progressive pump up. This is our halftime speech. When people hear this, they should tweet it, post it on Facebook if they're there. I don't know the other social media, how you do it, but get it out there. We will heavily retweet. Love you, brother. Go be great. See you soon, Hartzell. Have a great weekend. Chief, mate, what do you want to do tonight? The same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. The Pinky and the Brain. Yes, Pinky and the Brain. One is a genius, the other's insane. In laboratory mice, the genes have been sliced. The Pinky, the Pinky and the Brain, 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 Brain. Before each night is done, their plan will be unfurled by the dawning of the sun. They'll take over the world, the Pinky and the Brain, yes, Pinky and the Brain. Their twilight campaign is easy to explain. To prove their mousy worth, they'll overthrow the earth. The Pinky, the Pinky and the Brain, 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 Brain. brain.